tight end to me is the most underrated and undervalued position in the NFL. Look at all the teams in the last 10 years that have won or contended for Super Bowls and tell me a team that didn't have a top 15 tight end. Welcome to Props and Hops, a podcast pursuing the best in betting and beer. I'm your host, Matt Landis, and this week our focus sharpens on the NFL draft. In fact, that'll be the case the rest of the month here, so we can refer to these next few episodes as our plug-and-play series leading up to draft day. Here to kick it off, a special guest, Ron Marmolevsky. Ron has more than three decades of experience producing NFL draft content. And Ron, I'm not positive, but I'd be willing to bet you've got even more experience embracing the hoppier side of life. So this has been a long time coming. Welcome to Props and Hops. Matt, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Back in the college days, I hadn't even had a beer yet. It took me six pack of potato chips to get one beer down. (laughs) But by the end of my freshman year, you know, I was a good student. I, I reversed the ratio, six beers, one bag of potato chips. So I could do pop props and hops with you anytime. <laughs> when you said six pack, I would not have guessed that potato chips would be the next couple of words to come out of your mouth. Do you recall what that first beer was that it took the six pack of chips just to get that one beer down? I would guess it was probably something like a bud or something back in the day, you know, way in the way back or whatever. I didn't know one beer from another then. I didn't even know what dark beer was for another 20 years or something like that. But there are no buds in my uh, (laughs) my repertoire anymore. Yeah, I like to maintain there is a time and place for every beer, but I know that dark beer near and dear to your heart. And we will get to that probably in good detail later on in this conversation. But Ron, I know a lot of people also tuning in for your NFL draft expertise. And when it comes to that experience, more than 30 years producing NFL draft content, also working on college football and NFL season previews. I know that you have a bit of a specialty when it comes to player props, season win markets. Overall, with that foundation laid, how would you describe your background in betting? Well, it goes way back to always loving numbers and math and stuff like that, calculating batting averages before the newspapers had them. Who's the best player? Is it Oscar Robertson? Is it Elgin Baylor? And stuff like that. I was always on the wrong side being in L.A. because I always said it was the big O. Um, And then we would use the newspaper. um, The story I've told before is I learned how to bet in boys' glee because I can't sing. So I certainly didn't learn how to sing in boys glee, but everybody was either a bookie or a better. And we just took the sides and boy, Brown University out of the Ivy League, they were underdogs by 30, 35, 40 points every game. And I said, wow, I could start 30 to nothing, 35 to nothing. I'm going to do this for two years. I took Brown University plus a lot of other teams and I did okay, but I did about 30, 40 percent on Brown University. There was a reason why that they were 30-point underdogs and 35-point underdogs. And that got the curiosity out of me. And then I started developing power ratings. I started looking at why why are they losing by so many points? And that's how I started to come up with the foundation of line of scrimmage data. 
especially in a in a league where you could bet easily in the Ivy League through bookies, of course. But it, it was a bettable league. It wasn't one of these minor leagues like it is now. And it was pretty much run on first down, run on second down, pass on third down. So you got a lot of repeatable data out of it. And, and that just was the bread and butter for a long time. And all my foundation, how I set power ratings, how I look at line of scrimmage data hasn't changed much from those early outings. And thinking back to those formative days and boys glee betting on Brown University because of that big plus number attached to their name. Thinking about that and fast forwarding all the way to this conversation we're having in April of 2023. How would you describe some of the biggest changes you've witnessed in the betting industry over that time? Most of the changes are negative. And I, I hate to say that, Matt, to everybody, but it's like bookmakers were bookmakers back then. If if I was in Las Vegas and I would bet at one shop, uh, I would walk across the street in downtown and the line would be one, two points difference. There, there wasn't any of this betting on air when one shop moves, another shop moves. They would use an eraser and a red pen and a blue pen and they would type in minus seven, cross it off, minus six. And they took stands in those days. And so where you can't middle games as much now, and the only way you can middle games is if you have a good power rating feeling, if you, if you know a line is wrong and it's going to adjust, but you can't do it on game day or, or day before and so on. That's one of the biggest differences. It's not middles anymore that way. The prop area, the last uh, five or six years, really the last two years has become more mainstream. So you see people that are specializing in, in props, which is discouraging to me because it was kind of a secret to me. I could get value on props. Props wouldn't move that much. I was ahead of the game. People weren't, you know, high level, you know, big, big bettors weren't entering in the prop market that, you know, they had limits that, that weren't to their comfort level. But now props, you have to get in with the books right away. They'll change right away. You see them every NFL season. And then, unfortunately, the third thing, which we sort of talked about a little before going on air, is that uh, even in this environment where booking, you know, betting is legal now in 35 or so states, uh, it's harder to do now because as soon as you win, you're limited. And that comes from how you get your portfolio, when you make your bets, all these different things, all these stories about being limited to $1.31, $10, $25, and so on. Uh, it's harder to place a bet these days. Well, from books moving on air to more aggressively limiting bettors to the proliferation of props, and I got to apologize in a way, well, I would never dare to claim to be one of the best prop bettors in the world, having a podcast called Props and Hops over these last few years, maybe in some small way has put a, a damper on what you can do in this space. So thank you for overlooking that to still join me on this show today. While a lot of those changes overall haven't perhaps been for the best over time, if I kind of reframe that same question, but ask you about the biggest changes you've experienced yourself as a better and your growth during that same time span, Safe to assume that some of those changes might be more on the positive side? Yeah, you know, I do a lot of record keeping. I tell everybody in uh, the stuff Las Vegas Chris and I did last summer and so on, it's really about the process. Um, know what you're good at, know what you're not as good at. If I'm good at making regular season win bets under, why would I change it? If I'm good at um, 
Pac-12 underdogs, why would I change that? You know, find out what you're good about it, write about it, do all those things. So I'm kind of a methodical in terms of how I've done business, what I do in July and August so that I, I will not overreact during the year. Um, I hate to start off with a negative thing in terms of what's changed as a better, but the transfer portal has changed things, for example, in college. Um, you have a lot of people who are older, they have more years, their bodies are more developed. It used to be that if you saw six returning starters to a particular team that wasn't named Alabama, USC, or Ohio State, or something like that, that was a red flag. But now it could be six returning starters because they just poached eight starters from the MAC or, or something like that. So I've had to adjust how I look at data in terms of, and so it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a different thing where I have to calculate things a little differently. Returning starters is not the be all end all. I learned that uh, instead of taking advantage of early lines, which I will still do week one event college and NFL, I'll have a lot of my plays done by the beginning of August in the NFL for week one. But during a normal week, um, especially during the COVID time and stuff like that with information, I'm not playing as much early as I used to. That's a noticeable change for me in terms of it's not that I need to wait to the last minute, but I'm being more cautious with my numbers. If you know, I'm saying I'm not going to give in. I'm looking for seven points. It's six and a half. I'm going to wait. I'm not going to press and, okay, I'm going to bet a little bit now. I might lose a six and a half. If it gets to an actionable number or a whole number like a seven, then I'm going to do it. But I'm waiting a little bit more. I'm also doing uh, less situational handicapping, and there's a, a real good reason for that, and that's because it's what have you done lately in the NFL? What do we have? How many coaches have coached more than two years in the NFL right now with the same team? Less than half? How many GMs have changed over in the last two years? 12, 13, 14? How many coordinators? How many teams have their same offensive, defensive, and coordinator and head coach in the last, you know, from 2020? five maybe it's it's crazy so the situations that i built up there's still some i can use like standalone revenge games that are early in the year or you know something going on um where you know that you know somebody won on a trick play or they rubbed it in it was 40 to 7 and then it was 47 to 7 in the last two minutes you know some of those things but most of my situational things have um, it's a third of my handicapping in the past. It's probably less than a quarter of my handicapping now. I'd rather do matchup analysis and power ratings as the other two over the situational. That's a big change for me. I feel like from a situational standpoint, the NFL draft, much more information driven, a lot of situations people look into rather than, you know, being able to use something along the lines of power ratings. You also talked about one of your biggest changes waiting if you're holding out for a key number. I think looking things maybe more situationally than you do these days during the NFL regular season at a market like the NFL draft and also waiting as you have done over time. It's just the name of the game in this NFL draft betting cycle. And we'll get into that, Ron. But I want to note for everybody listening to this conversation or watching on YouTube that last week you had a great interview on the Monday Grind podcast with friend of the show, George Silfidis, a.k.a. G-Stack George. 
and you got into your history following the draft as a fan. Naturally, some betting talk weaved into that conversation. So I would highly recommend that anybody check out that conversation as well. And I will do my best to advance rather than repeat too much of that interview. Ron, when it comes to the overall approach you just outlined for yourself as a better, how would you compare that to the approach you take specifically to a market such as the NFL draft? Uh, it's interesting, Matt, because I've had to make a change last year and this year. If I see something early, I actually go for it, knowing that there's risk. There's risk because things could change, but the numbers change now. Uh, the draft props that did come out early, like first quarterback taken, um, I think there are, you know, what position somebody will be at and, and uh, that a team will choose. It really doesn't stay there for long once somebody moves. And because the market is more saturated with uh, sharp players or people looking to get an edge, um, I've had to take some chances. I'll give you a negative example because, you know, not everything's positive. I've done very, very well with the draft. But prior to free agency last year, the Cincinnati Bengals, everybody knew from watching the Super Bowl and every game before that, that they were going to go O-line. I mean, everybody knew the O-line was in shambles. So I made my play, whatever it was, that they would go O-line first pick plus 250 or some great number. But then free agency hit and they signed three offensive linemen and everything changed. So they did not go offensive linemen. They went defensive back. But that's an example of a risk that I have to take. But normally, you know, what I would do is I study the GMs. That's one of the things that I do in terms of how I go about business. Um, I put together my own team needs. I have a 32-page draft preview that um, hopefully will be published. I'm working on it. That'll come out for everybody in the next few days. Um, you got an advanced copy because I just wanted to yes, show you what's going you. on there. But, uh, you know, so I'm studying the GMs. I'm looking at the team needs. I'm looking at what I think they should do in the first draft. I'm looking at the num first round. I'm looking at the number of picks that they have. Um, and then later on this week, I'm going to look at things like private visits. They're allowed 30 per team, but it's not just private visits and it's not just one player. I'm looking for habits. I'm looking for have they had private visits with eight cornerbacks and one defensive end? Or have they had, you know, have like Pittsburgh last year interviewed every every quarterback on the planet before they they settled on Kenny Pickett? So you're looking for trends and then you're looking at beat writers. You're looking at everything but mainstream media. You're not watching ES, at least I'm not watching ESPN or the NFL Network to get my information. I'm going a little bit deeper and combining different information. So that's kind of my approach to the NFL draft. It's, it's a, a four-pronged approach that gets me to a point. And when you talk about mainstream media and looking to avoid it when you're focusing on the NFL draft, I know this can become a very information-driven market. And at the same time, a lot of misinformation can make the rounds at this time every year. So how do you go about deciphering what's signal and what's noise? Um, you know, some people will say, well, if the odds really come down, that changes things. But it doesn't always work that way. We saw in the market that uh, the first quarterback selected changed rapidly at one point to where, uh, you know, who is it? Uh, Young of Alabama became, you know, uh, more of a heavy underdog. 
and Stroud was going to be the first pick because the trade up and they like a certain type of quarterback. But now we know that the locker room is divided. All that talk died down. And now it's it's pretty close to 50-50 in terms of who's going to be taken. And And from my standpoint, what I've uncovered so far is I do believe that they haven't decided yet. So the... The opportunity, like I discussed with George, I think we both had the play of plus 450 or plus 475 with Stroud. And then to come back with uh, Young at you know, plus whatever, you know, it was as high as 250. I think I got plus 210. Richardson would kill me if that happened. But yeah, the market is such as that this is lying season. And anything you get out of GMs, any anything they're telling media people, there's examples of media people that have been fed wrong information on purpose so that they could spout it out. Um, I won't name those names, but there was a famous one way back when. And, uh, you know, they were just routinely, the, the 49ers were guilty of this all the time. They were laughing out of one ear and telling this guy something out of the other ear. So you have to be really careful. Well, you just talked about the number one overall pick seemingly being 50-50 between Young and Stroud. And over the course of the last few hours, that's changed in a pretty big way. So if somebody thinks they know something, it's looking like it's more of a 75-25 proposition at this point. If we just go off of the current odds, Bryce Young favored at minus 300. I'm even seeing a minus 320 looking at a few of the biggest U.S. legal books. So that's moved in a big way. Now, last year at this time leading up to the draft, Trayvon Walker was not yet the favorite. So just because Bryce Young is favored now does not mean that anything is a guarantee. But as you talk about how quickly these markets can move, I mean, just in the past few hours, it looks like things have steamed for Young in a pretty big way. And I'm wondering, as far as your process goes, when you see that kind of movement take place in a hurry at this stage of the cycle, if that has any impact on your personal betting process. Yeah, it would um, at this particular point. I hadn't kept up to date for today, so it changed in a hurry just from yesterday to today. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, it was flipped the other way. That's why I decided, hey, wait a second. I don't know that Stroud is. I know Stroud was a good bet at plus 475, but I didn't. But to me, if it's 50-50 and now you can get the other guy at plus two to one, then that's what I did. So maybe it's Stroud, but remember when they – when Baker Mayfield news came out and he became ahead of Sam Darnold and Josh Rosen and those guys, that was 24 hours before the draft. That wasn't even, that was even same day at some books before the draft. And then the, the trade up when San Francisco got Trey Lance, everybody thought it was a different quarterback at first, but luckily that's why I studied GMs. I said, no, this is Trey Lance and I'm going all in on Trey Lance on this particular one. And eventually Trey Lance didn't become the favorite, but he kind of was the co-favorite at times. But people still didn't know. So this is a significant move you're mentioning. And I'm just glad I'm done with that bet because I have both sides. The only thing that would hurt me is Richardson. He got his steam about two weeks ago. You know, if a GM selects Richardson, okay, I'll pay the money and I'll write a little note and said, you stuck your neck out on the line for Richardson, a guy with 13 starts and a 53% completion percentage. Congratulations, you beat me. Let's move on to the next one. Um, I'm just going uh, on the on the feeling that he's not going to be the number one pick. Well, perhaps it's fitting that we've started off talking about the number one pick because it's been a really scarce market so far in terms of any offerings beyond that type of wager. What's your sense, Ron, as to how much more this market might develop over the course of these next couple of weeks as we approach draft day? It's going to develop, but it's not going to develop like the old days. 
Um, not that long ago, and I'm talking four years ago, maybe even three years ago, there were offshore books where you could place a bet on the 15th, uh, you know, the team with the 15th pick in the draft. You could place it about 30 minutes before that pick was going to be made. When the 13th pick went on the clock, the 15th pick was taken off, that kind of thing. So you had a lot of information. There was multiple choice. Would A, B, C, or D player be selected? And then you got to make that pick. And if none of those were selected, you actually got your money back. <laughs> so those, those days are gone. So we're going to have some things open up. I haven't seen as much. Um, what we, I think we had about 40 or 50 last year. We're over under a position. Would, let's say, Anthony Richardson go over under pick uh, four and a half? Or, or would a wide receiver, you know, take, in, take Quentin Johnson, let's say, of TCU? I don't know what the market is. I haven't seen a number on him, but I imagine that number would be like 15 and a half, 20 and a half, something like that. Quay Walker was an example last year, mm -hmm. gobbled up by Green Bay. He was in the mid 30s and he ended up in 20 something because it got steamed what Green Bay was doing. And, um, and one thing, if I may, on Quay Walker, as you bring up that point, I I've got to work in here. Pardon the interruption, but. I remember as that number steamed, a lot of books, okay, if he's lying in the mid thirties and then word spreads right before the draft and he's suddenly lying in the mid twenties, it's not always looking at this as, oh, I got this one number or I've missed the boat altogether. With Quay Walker, I was traveling last year shortly before the draft and I missed the initial wave of his over under position, but there are other markets that can get at similar concepts. So one of my accounts still had a prop with a stale number on Quay Walker. Will he go in the first round? Yes or no. So by the time maybe his total was over under, let's say 26 and a half, the will he go in the first round? That's basically a proxy for over under 32 and a half, except for a year like this where the Dolphins forfeit a pick. So we're looking at 31 <laughs> picks in this year's first round. But basically, uh, the point is that if you think you might have missed the boat on one market, try to look for a bigger attack surface, especially closer to draft day. As we touch on, the market has been so scarce up to this point. But as we see some of these moves late in the betting cycle, just because you missed one number doesn't mean you can't get down on a very similar concept for the same player, perhaps at another book. Yeah. And that's a good concept to have not only in draft, but in other areas when you, you miss a number on a key move on a receiver or running back in a prop or even on a game to bet the first half or to go bet a team total or something like that. There are, you know, that's a good point in terms of looking at other markets yeah, that turned out to be uh, a fun look at Quay Walker's rise and, and then to match them up, then say, well, who's making the move? And then you realize, wait a second, Green Bay has affected the move market three of the last four years. So I just went ahead and matched them up to Green Bay, you know, for some extra cash that particular way. So I think we will see those. Will we go in the first round? Yes or no. Those over under numbers. The thing, you know, the market driver in Vegas, like Circa, uh, and we had uh, Matt on, you know, Chris and I last year, and, and, and he basically, the draft was in Las Vegas last year, and they were so reluctant to put up the numbers because it's a break-even proposition for them at best. So they put them up for like 24 hours or 48 hours. And in fact, I think the rule, I don't know if the rule is in all Vegas, Um so I don't want to be quoted on this, but I think draft props, have, have maybe because it was in Vegas, they all went down 24 hours before the draft. Mm -hmm. So you 
there is a chance if people are waiting for game day props that we'll actually see fewer game day props this year than we've ever seen. And sticking with the action of the timeliness involved in all this, yes, we're waiting to the market for we're waiting for the market to develop. But if we wait too long, some of the options might mm-hmm. get taken away in certain jurisdictions. I know that there have been times you kind of alluded to it a few minutes ago about live betting during the draft. I think there was a story you told George on the Monday grind about the Bengals back in 2012 with Drake Kirkpatrick. So first off, if you could just give us the cliffs notes of that story, and then I'll use that as a springboard for the next topic. I want to talk about. Well, I only gave them half of that story. There is another half of that story. All right. So the Drake Kirkpatrick one, I had honed in on Cincinnati. And although I, I was wrong this year with Cincinnati, I have not been wrong in the past. They got me this year, obviously. But Drake, I knew they wanted a DB. I was just waiting to see what DBs were off. And they had four choices. And Drake Kirkpatrick was seven to one. He was the longest. I mean, there was a minus 140. There was a plus 150 or whatever. He was, and by the time I was finished with him, and I, I used, and a friend of mine, too, um, we had uh, knocked it down to five to two, but it was still there. And, uh, and we just did it repeatedly. And then we were, we were celebrating and I missed something absolutely completely. I got a text from, uh, you know, somebody and the text was very simple. Who the hell is Bruce Irvin? So we know who Bruce Irvin is. Football players know he's the defensive end. I think he came from the West, you know, West Virginia. He was drafted by Seattle uh, the thing is, he had a prop uh, over under, would he be taken 55 and a half? And I was saying, these are pass rushers. They always go early. My draft swap for him was like 25 to 35. I set ranges for these people. Of course, I'm going to do it. So we hit that as, as much as we can. But he's out of sight, out of mind. I'm reading this, this text from him. Who the hell is Bruce Irvin? And I'm saying, why is he talking about Bruce Irvin? And because of all the excitement that we got the bed in on Cincinnati, we didn't realize that a pick earlier, Bruce Irvin went at pick 15 (laughs) to Seattle and we had already won our bet. And I wasn't even thinking about the guy. And I'm saying, that's even bigger than this other one. And, you know, two for one, it was just crazy. Yeah, few things are better than watching the NFL draft unfold when everything's falling into place with your bets. And sometimes you might not even be aware of it if the action gets a little too fast and furious. So to that end, I'm wondering if fast forwarding now more than a decade from the Cincinnati Drake or Patrick story to present day, while in some jurisdictions, again, within 24 hours, you're not going to get anything down. Is there anything you've noticed that still is available when it comes to live betting or anything at least later in the process where there might be some sort of attack surface against books that are perhaps a little too slow to adjust any numbers that they do care to post at some point here? I think the two areas that we would be looking at is head to heads. You know, when they pit one wide receiver against another, who will go first? One defensive lineman against another. The market's slim right now. I've only seen seven or eight of those head to heads and most of them have been knocked into place. I've, I've done two or three of them myself already. Um, and, and they flipped actually at one point I had a bad deal and now I'm back to having a little bit of a good deal at, at which offensive lineman would go first was that one. But those that's the market head to head that can be slower to move from book to book. That's one I would look at and still those positional things. For example, uh, Jeff Okuda, he was traded today. He was traded um, from Detroit to Atlanta. 
which pretty much knocks Atlanta out of the cornerback. And a lot of people had them going cornerback. You know, maybe this pounds a hammer into the Atlanta draft brass's head that the only three positions they should look at are edge rusher, edge rusher, and edge rusher. Um, so, you know, whatever you, you know, I would take a chance. Sometimes you get bad GMs. Sometimes you get these new GMs. And this is a hard thing for me this year with all the new GMs. I have to be more cautious. All the predictability I know with a guy like Mike Tomlin and Bill Belichick and some of the others, there's not predictability with a lot of the other GMs. But I'm thinking in this case that Atlanta is maybe actually will draft an edge rusher in the top 10 this time. And this helps solidify it. So you're looking for news like that. Um, I think those are the only two things that aren't going to be beaten in the submission before 24 hours. As we have this conversation, FanDuel currently has Atlanta's position of the Falcons first drafted player defensive lineman, which they have clarified anybody listed as an edge on NFL.com is a defensive lineman minus two fifty. So maybe that's oh, already that been changed. beaten into place because this hap- the Okuda trade happened a few hours ago. So again, there's an element of timeliness. You don't need to get something the minute it happens. Some of the best pro bettors in the world, the likes of Hitman, they'll be first to everything. But yeah. I think sometimes if you're not first, but you're just not several hours late, this is the kind of market where you know maybe a certain defensive lineman's over-under would move in a major way, but the positional link to a certain team could be lagging behind. Does that check out in your book? Yeah, I think they were minus 150 yesterday. Uh, Two other books were minus 105 and minus 115, including one that was minus 115 today that I I put the finishing touches on that one. But I I won't go, after caution, you made a good point that defensive linemen and edge were together. Make sure you read the rules, of course. But the other thing is, um, especially for people delving in and, and they don't do the background, like they don't produce... 32 draft previews like I do and this and that, whatever, treat it recreationally. You know, don't be mad that Atlanta doesn't go edge rusher because they're Atlanta. If I lose that bet, I'll just shake my head and said, well, that's what Atlanta does. Obviously they need to go edge rusher, but they, they haven't gone edge rusher for a long time. Treat, treat the whole thing as recreation. I like that point, and I'm going to use that to transition into a couple of my top principles when it comes to betting the draft. And I'm mentioning these not to turn this into a monologue of any sort, but really to get them vetted by somebody like you, Ron, with your expertise. So I think for the audience, I'll look to bring one or two of these top principles into each episode of this little plug and play draft series we've got leading up to draft day. And I was going to mention this second, but Ron, staying on topic, the, the notion of binary bets. When we talk about looking at what position will a team draft first a lot of books there's going to be at least half a dozen options and then maybe something like the field and i feel like usually if somebody doesn't really know what they're doing they're probably better suited looking at over unders or yes or no type of outcomes binary outcomes versus the needle in the haystack type of bets a hat tip to steve fezzik who uses that phrasing all the time typically if we see more options in terms of the outcomes for a specific bet that equates to more hidden vig that the sports book is baking into their hold. And oftentimes there are some pretty big plus numbers that look enticing, but they're not quite big enough. And I, I say this not to make it an absolute rule. I tried to caveat, I think with words like generally and probably because my first draft bet this year was JSN to be the first wide receiver taken at minus 125. And that's not because of anything I know about him as a player or what team might need his skill set. So a very different approach to a lot of what you've outlined. 
But I just noticed that the consensus price for this bet was minus 200 to minus 250 at a lot of books. And in fact, that still is the consensus price. So I took more of the approach of, hey, I haven't done all my homework like you have. I don't know all these players or where they fit with certain teams. I'm just looking to shop around, see what different books are offering and spot the sucker. So if you find yeah. a bet that's not offering binary outcomes, but it is way off market, by all means, knock yourself out. But I do think generally speaking, big vig attached to binary bets can often offer more expected value than big plus numbers attached to those needle and a haystack type of bets. And I realize that might sound really counterintuitive, but to give an example from last year, one of my best bets, if not the best bet that I made was laying minus 800. And that's because the bet was, will Jamison Williams go in the first round? Yes or no. Ron, I don't know, but I think if it was minus 8,000, there still might have been value on the yes. <laughs> we know he was coming off the ACL injury, but we also knew that he was probably going pretty early in the first half of the first round, let alone having the whole second half of the first round available as well. So when it comes to that notion of generally looking at binary bets, I know you have mentioned things like what positions will teams draft. So maybe our approaches clash a little bit. Maybe there's some healthy tension there. What's your general point of view when it comes to betting binary outcomes versus maybe trying to find some value in those needle in a haystack type of bets as well. Um, well, I have, I have two comments to that. Number one is I wouldn't have laid the eight to one uh, minus mm. 800 because wow. um, you don't know. It depends when you made it. If you made it 10 minutes before the draft, that's one thing, but if you made it 24 hours, 36 or whatever, and then you find out that, uh, he got a speeding ticket. He got busted for this or whatever. I mean, there, there are just so many things that I've seen players do um, that ruin their draft stock. And, and to me, I'd rather leave the minus 800 alone. I'd rather do it the other way. But this is a finance-driven business in a way, and that's why you see more market people in here. To me, it's all about return on investment. So if you're looking at something that's plus 300 where you have these multi-positional things, which like you said correctly, that there's more big, more hidden big that the books are taking. Um, if you have a plus 300 and you say, well, well, of course, I think he has a, at least a 30% chance of going. Well, you better not do that bet. You better recalculate your finance because if you think he has a 30% chance of bet, you're going to lose that seven times. You're going to win it three times plus 300 isn't enough. So if you're taking something, I mean, this is the way I look at all of my plays. Really, if I'm taking somebody, will, um, you know, will, I did do a, I did a minus 300, for example. Um, your same player, would he be drafted before Jordan Addison? Addison right after Addison ran his uh, 40 time and stuff like that. because I Did he run that or did he walk it? Because I, I yeah. heard that it wasn't the most uh, it, brisk 40. He, yeah, it hurt his draft <laughs> stock, let's put it that way. So what are the chances that he's drafted before? So I said, well, five out of six times. So if you lay 300 five out of six times, you're going to, you know, then you're going to be okay with that. Um, if... Um, I'm trying to look at my list of, of what happening. So Arizona, they may trade back on the pick. I realize they may trade back on the pick, but if they trade, Will Anderson was plus 450 to one on DraftKings. I pointed that out offline to a couple of people. Um, the chances of him being drafted by Arizona, if they stay at three, the chances are at least 50-50, much better than that, I think, if they stay at three. And if Arizona trades down from three to four, the chances are still that way. If Indianapolis goes up one to prevent another team from going up. 
So I'm not saying it's a sure thing if Quest 450, but if I think it's, I mean, I actually think it's still a one out of three chance of happening, which would be Quest 200. So every play I make, you know, in a position like Dallas running back for right now is something like plus 550. And I think if the board hits a certain way, maybe they have a chance at Bijan Robinson, which fits them to a T. Now, the only problem I have with Dallas is that Dallas has been really passive during the draft and somebody's going to sneak ahead of him and probably take him. But if he's there at that number, the way the running back board has been developing over the last few years i think plus 550 is a very good deal yeah i'm looking at i'm seeing plus 500 at one regulated book i'm seeing plus 600 at another yeah split the difference there you go there's the there's the plus 550 ish well i appreciate the breakdown there and i i want to underscore that point of laying big big i do often think that some of the best bets you can make in the draft will entail laying a lot of big but especially when there's enough time between you seeing a certain number and the draft occurring. Usually only things can go wrong versus breaking (laughs) right. Somebody's probably not going to suddenly get faster or test better right before draft day, but they might get a DUI. They might get injured. You know, there, there are a lot of things that tend to, there's a longer tail, I guess, toward the negative than there is toward the positive. So I think that that's a good point that you're making something to be aware of. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't ever lay big numbers, but maybe it means that you should probably, gear up for those bigger numbers that you're going to be laying the closer we get to the draft actually beginning. Yeah. 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 I agree. Just be careful on those. Um, You know, in these position, what position a player took, you know, a team will take with a player. So I looked back at last year and plus 200 or more hit, I think eight times, which is a pretty nice number considering, like you said, that there's a little bit more big involved. I mean, there were a couple of plus 400s in there and so on. And the first choice hit less than half the time. So it's kind of interesting. You know, everybody thinks they have all this information, but you're not in the room with the GM trading back like Minnesota did from 12 to 32. And all of a sudden, everything's all shot. Well, who's moving up? Who's moving back? Uh, You know, New Orleans, we know they're going to move up because they don't know how to not move up. So who are they going to trade with? They trade with Washington. Washington moves back. What are they going to do? It's crazy. And and the over-under for trades I saw was seven. So that means 14 teams are going to be drafting in different positions or as many as 14 teams if they're right about the over-under for first-round trades. I think that really underscores the importance of the second principle I want to run by you. And I know it almost goes without saying at this stage, very cliche, but please, if you can... Shop for the best number. Similar to Super Bowl props, there's not an odd screen for books to copy each other like we see with point spreads and totals during the regular season. And kind of like the bet I just broke down about JSN becoming the first wide receiver drafted this year, I think something I've learned from a lot of the best bettors that I've been able to touch base with over time, it can be really valuable to shop for numbers without even having specific bets in mind. And that's how last week I was not looking to bet Bryce Young. I was just looking to bet a plus EV number. And thinking about the logic of sports betting, one of the best books I could encourage for an aspiring sharp sports better, and also the movie Rounders, which they quote in the logic of sports betting, spotting the sucker, you don't have to look far in the draft market oftentimes. Again, this was late last week, the number one overall pick, the single most popular bet, pretty much the one prop that a lot of books have had up to this point. Bryce Young was plus 225. And even then the consensus was right around even money, kind of that coin flip that you mentioned earlier. But there was just a book hanging a bad number. 
and now seeing Young at minus 300 plus at leading regulated books. Yeah, it feels good to have that plus 225 in pocket. But kind of as you said, with bets we have at this stage of the cycle, that is no guarantee. Another reminder, last year at this time, Trayvon Walker was not favored to go one. So let's not start counting that money yet on any Bryce Young to go first overall bets. But I think the overall process to make this more forward-looking for anybody catching this conversation, listening with a couple weeks to go between now and draft day, things are going to change. And I would encourage anybody to read Ron's work and soak up as much insight as you can if you want to be really knowledgeable about certain player team fits and GM tendencies that can matter so much more than a lot of the noise that makes its way across the mainstream media. But really, if you can just shop numbers and and sometimes not even looking for specific bets, but just looking at the market as a whole, that can lead you to the best wagers you'll find across pretty much the entire calendar year. Now that's my thought on it, but Ron, tell me where you agree or or perhaps even better disagree with some. No, I think that's an excellent addition to some of the work and stuff like that. If, if the work is being done and then you look around and, and I agree with that every once in a while, not every once in a while, every other day, I'm going to look at all the offerings. And so the offerings are there. And I say, well, wait a second, this number doesn't seem right. Why is this number here? And then I'm going to look back and, you know, what my notes are for that team. I'm going to look at the other books. And, and you're absolutely right. You can end up with a play that you weren't planning on having. Now, you may want to eventually middle that play if it's an over under a certain part of the draft that they're going, or you may just say, this is value. I'm going to do it. Um, I may win it. I may lose it. But I know if over the course of a large enough sample size, I have good return on investment. So I, I think it's excellent. I think that's an excellent approach to look and see where the outliers are. Well, Ron, I know we've covered a lot of good ground on process-driven topics around NFL draft betting. At this point, I, I just have to ask with my respect for the work that you do, is there anything that you see across any of the market right now that you would consider bettable or perhaps anything that might not be available yet, but that you're keeping in the sites that you are waiting to bet between now and draft day? Well, I am honing in on where my first, you know, it's pretty much what I'm talking about, right? Dallas running back. I want to continue to hear the noise on that. I, I have put in a token bet on that one already, just in case that moves, that Dallas tips their hand. And, and Dallas, one of the organizations that tend to tip their hand, your chargers are annoying because I, I don't live far. I don't live far from them. Uh, I can't get any information about them. I can't get trends, tendencies, and they have a GM that I should have tens, you know, trends and tendencies. Uh, they, they actually even fooled me with the Bosa pick a few years ago, and I haven't forgiven them for that. But for the, for the most part, I'm just looking to see where I can get value on first position drafted. And I don't think I have anything quite in mind. There was one I did um, yesterday, for example, I saw Zay Flowers. He was, uh, he's one of my favorite wide receivers. And this, I'm not sure I recommend him because I just happen to like Zay Flowers more than a lot of people. I think he's, he's potentially, if he goes to the right team, uh, the first or second best wide receiver in this draft. If he were two inches higher, you know, taller, he would be the best by far. He still high points the ball incredibly well for his size. Uh, his number was 24 and a half and 25 and a half. And one of them was plus 210. It's now plus 190 for Zay Flowers. And I said, you know something? I don't know if he's going to go in the first 25, but 
chances are somebody's going to latch on to, to all the good interviews he did and all the great tape he had with a, with a college, Boston College, who didn't throw the ball all that well, that I think it's worth my risk to take you know, pretty much two to one odds to take him. That's the latest one that I did. Um, that's my pizza money play. Well, uh, connecting the dots between your comment about my Chargers and Zay Flowers, I wouldn't mind if they ended up taking to add some speed, much needed speed to that wide receiver core. But spoiler alert, in your 32-page draft preview, the page devoted to the Chargers does not list receiver as their number one need. So, Ron, let's talk a little bit more about that 32-page preview that you've put together that people can keep an eye out to hit the bookshelf soon, so to speak. Uh, what goes into the process? How did this all get started? And what was it like for you putting it together with what we know leading up to the 2023 yeah. NFL draft? Well, it gives me closure on the NFL season and it sets me where I could I could look at the teams and then not look at them for a couple of months until it gets to the draft. You know, And, and then it brings me up to date, just like the draft and how I analyze the draft. Then I can then I'm so far ahead of the game, I don't have to worry about anything else, and I can concentrate on college, you know, college football or beer or anything else. So, you know, I start off with a general statement as to how the last season went, and then I look at relevant stats. It could be as simple as the stats that I value, pass defense, third down efficiency, sack ratio, which is very important to me. It could be random, like a minus 12 fumble ratio, I think. Or I think Dallas had had something like a plus 12 fumble, you know, s- some random kind of thing where you know there's going to be regression to the mean. Uh, I'm looking at personnel changes. Who are the new GM? Who's the new offensive coordinator? I might make a comment or two on that. So I'm leading all this to the draft, looking at their roster, taking their draft needs at that point. Uh, I even give some information, admittingly, it's, it's information that I believe that, that other people may not believe as to how their draft room kind of analyzes things. Are they traders? Are they passive? Do they like to stockpile picks? Do they like to look at certain positions? So I've got like 10 columns like that, what they might do in the first round, what they might do in the second round, how many picks they have. And it's it's just a whole summary and it gets people hopefully up to date on where that team is. And going through that process, would you say that you identified any players who you would consider perhaps the most overrated and underrated at this age of the draft betting cycle? Um, well, I'm not a, if, if you go by certain positions, for example, I'd like to talk about a position because I don't think it gets, sure. um, mentioned enough. Tight end to me is the most underrated and undervalued position in the NFL. Look at all the teams in the last 10 years that have won or contended for Super Bowls, and tell me a team that didn't have a top 15 tight end. It's very hard. Look at all the new quarterbacks, the, the Josh Rosens, the Sam Darnolds of the world, the Mitch Trubisky, all those people who didn't have a tight end when they were rookies. And then look at Patrick Mahomes, who gets Travis Kelsey, or look at Lamar Jackson, who gets every Baltimore tight end you know, that, they, that they've had in the past few years, which have been great over the time. Um, 
it's it's just the position. If you want to know what teams are at the bottom of the league, they don't have good tight end play. If you want to make a general statement as to what are most of the teams in the top five, six going to have, they're going to have competent to electric tight end play. And when you have a good tight end crop like this year and like last year, people have to understand how important that is to an offense. If I can push back on you a little bit here, because I know if I'm inclined to disagree, then you're about to school me. So I'm just inviting no, it on no. myself. There here. are exceptions. But when I think about some of the best tight ends, I think, okay, a guy like Travis Kelsey, even think about a guy like Gronk as a Chargers fan, I can go back to Antonio Gates. A lot of these guys were not drafted with premium draft capital and perhaps their teams were so good not only because the player turned out to be so good but because that first round pick that maybe he would warrant in hindsight ended up going to another premium player to further bolster that roster and if we look most recently at a high-end draft pick used on a tight end if I've got my facts straight that would be Kyle Pitts in Atlanta and say what you will about is he or isn't he a true tight end with the way he's more of a pass catcher but that pick hasn't worked out so well thus far for the Falcons. No, you're right. And, and a lot of it could have to do with coaching a lot. I mean, you, it's one player, even, you know, Peyton Manning didn't get to the Super Bowl very much because they had a lot of, they, they drafted for offense only. They didn't draft for defense. Uh, and Joe Burrow is going to have a tough time unless they shore up the offensive line. He's going to, you know, he's going to have to take uh, stock out on some hospitals and stuff like that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's still a situation. You don't have to have the first round tight end. I mean, uh, George Kittle was not drafted anywhere near the first round, but mm -hmm. he's an excellent tight end and he was just undervalued as a tight end. It's just that position. You should not go without that position. Uh, you just need to have that. And I would, I would flip the argument around because you made a very good point there about using the first round draft capital for somebody other than tight end, which I firmly agree with. I'm not pushing back on that. Instead, I would push back on taking one of these quarterbacks, Will Levis or Richardson, in the first round, because I put out a tweet about a week or so ago, and, and, and I'm just going to read it and quote it you know, again. Um, the idea that you didn't draft a Sauce Gardner or you didn't draft a Joey Bosa or Nick Bosa or some of those guys, but you went for one of the last seven quarterbacks chosen second overall, Rick Meyer, Ryan Leaf. Hey RG3, Mitch Trubisky, Zach Wilson are five of the last seven quarterbacks drafted that completely set your franchise back. That's number two, number two overall pick. Number three overall pick. I don't even know if you know these names. Heath Shuler, Achilles Smith, one great year at University of Oregon. That was it. Joey Harrington, also University of Oregon. Um, Vince Young. Sam Darnold hasn't worked out. Trey Lance due to injury more than anything else. We're talking about 70% of the players at quarterback in the last 30 years drafted second or third, not working out. You know, that would be my argument for not putting everything on a quarterback if you're not, if your team's not ready. I love where you're taking this because I didn't think we'd go down this path. And again, <laughs> I, I have a bit of a bone to pick with that, but I, I'm going to bring it up more of the spirit of learning from you and, and please put me in my place if I'm off base with any of this. But first off with that list, I would say if I didn't know you were also in Los Angeles, it feels a bit like you're picking on the West Coast. So nobody can accuse you of being too much of a homer with all these <laughs> Southern California and West Coast quarterbacks that haven't panned out despite being drafted so high in recent years. 
But when you talk about a guy like Sauce Gardner, Joey Bosa, you know, other players that can make an impact at other positions aside from quarterback, is it a fair assumption that pretty much at most these guys are worth one point, maybe occasionally one and a half if we're looking at a full game point spread in the NFL is for non quarterbacks is one and a half points about as much as it gets in your book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one is more common. You might get a two depending on who you're facing. I always argue that uh, it depends on who you're facing too. where they, you know, if the pass rush is more important because they have a weak offensive line, that defensive end named, you know, Aaron Donald might be worth two points instead of one point. Uh, or you take a look at the Watt of Pittsburgh. What's what's their record like? Fifty. Their record is seventy percent with him and one in ten without him. So he maybe he's the anomaly, but he makes everybody better on that particular team. A guy like Aiden Hutchinson of Detroit might make everybody better because of his worth ethic, because he occupies other people, and so on. And you're and the point you're leading to, I'm sure, is that quarterback. If if they hit on quarterback. That's five, six, seven points, depending on what your quarterback is to your backup, especially if it's Aaron Rodgers to whoever in the past, every time Aaron Rodgers got hurt and so on. The thing is that some of the quarterbacks I mentioned shouldn't have been drafted that high. That's the problem. Achilles yeah. Smith with one year body of work shouldn't have been drafted that high. Joey Harrington with his pass completion percentage and the way he and maybe I'm picking on University of Oregon, but I have a right to do that because I, I went to a rival school, uh, but he shouldn't have been drafted that high. Rick Meyer was kind of a formula quarterback who would throw these short area passes. They're taking a chance because if they hit big, you know, it's, it's unbelievable, especially rookie contracts. But if the quarterback's not ready, that's where I would argue that's a problem. And I appreciate you dancing with me here. I think the sparring match is just about over, but if I may sneak in one more counterpunch, I would say that I received text messages from friends apologizing when the Chargers drafted Justin Herbert because the thought was, hey, big arm, but he's not ready. And hey, somebody from Oregon worked out since Dan Bouts. Yeah. And no, then um, Josh Allen, great. similar story a few years before that. And I do hear you that if we just look at recent history, I'll take your word for it. If we want to say 70% of these guys don't work out, if we say there's a 30% chance that you get a swing of anywhere from, let's say, three to seven points for a star quarterback, maybe at other positions, the hit rate is higher than 30%, but it's probably not much north of 50%, I would guess. And if you hit, you're getting very lucky to get one or one and a half points of value out of that pick. So I just think in most cases, yes, a non-quarterback at the very top of the draft is going to have whatever, a quote unquote, un a quote unquote successful career, but the asymmetric risk involved, if you're really looking to win Super Bowls and not just be a good team instead of a mediocre team might still lead me to shoot for the moon. Maybe that's because I'm a jaded Chargers fan whose team has never won. But what would you say to that approach of, yes, conceding that most of the time it's probably not going to work out, but still trying to look at it from as much of a qualitative and quantitative standpoint as possible, kind of blending that approach. There's still an argument to be made, perhaps, for taking the shot at some of these flyers because we just don't know how it's going to work and the upside is through the roof. First of all, 
This has been fantastic. I love the spirit of the thing. And I, and I love the fact that there's give and take because there's learning on both ends going on. It doesn't matter that I've done this 40 years. You're still learning about different things. And I think the approach in this must win now universe that didn't exist in the NFL 20 years ago is, yeah, it's we're willing to break the bank to get Russell Wilson because we're tired of finishing eight and eight. We're willing to take Matthew Stafford and give all these picks away because we just won a Super Bowl. And if we have to rebuild the next five years, you can't take that Super Bowl away. Mm -hmm. So I understand shooting for the stars because that's the nature. It's hard to build these days because just when they get really, really good, you could lose them to free agency after four or five years. But it's interesting that quarterback is still one of the hardest positions for GMs scouts and everybody to evaluate where you know what an edge rusher is and they have a higher hit rate especially in the first round left tackles have a very high hit rate in the first round Um, there's a lot of positions that have just have higher hit rates than quarterback Um, but I understand I mean teams want to get out of the rut all right. Well, I think uh, in terms of uh, calling this fight, we will leave that to the audience. Ron, again, thank you for sparring with me there. And I will just say that big picture, if I'm ever disagreeing with you on anything related to the NFL or especially from a betting standpoint, I'm probably a significant underdog. So I appreciate the opportunity to get my thoughts yeah. out there and, and let you bring it right back. Yeah, it's fun. No, no, no. 50-50. That's what we are. All right. Well, speaking of 50-50, actually, we're a little bit north of 50 minutes into this conversation. I've still got a few things I love to run by you if possible. So let's move on from the draft. I know that season wins also being a focus of yours. If you could quickly describe your approach and perhaps any actionable angles, it seems like regular season wins also a pretty sparsely populated market at this point. But through your approach to markets like season wins, is there anything that you've identified as potential value in those or other futurist markets that would be currently available? First of all, season wins used to be one of my last kept secrets. I didn't share with anybody. And then I went ahead and did what I did and whatever. But then about seven, eight years ago, Bill Barnwell published an article about Pythagorean theorem stuff. Mm-hmm. And I turned to my wife and, and basically said, Nah, damn it. Why did he do that? Why did he share that and stuff like that? Now people are up to date on, you know, why is Minnesota, for example, at an eight and a half win total when they won 13 games last year, the Minnesota Vikings? You would never have seen that without that article being published. The fact that they won 13, if this was five years ago, they would they would have a number of 10, 10 and a half. Uh, but they're rightfully priced at eight and a half, even though Green Bay has no you know, may not have Aaron Rodgers. Chicago is have the worst record in football. Detroit is ascending and the favorite in the division. So I've moved on from Pythag. I now use that in conjunction with two or three other things. So it's kind of the double whammy, triple whammy thing. I look at turnover ratios. I look at strength of schedule. I look at placement of schedule games. You know, I look at random turnover ratio versus expected turnover ratio. I look at front office changes. I look at uh, sack ratio. So I combine all that with the expected points versus uh, actual achieved points. So I've moved on in that particular area. I, I bet my portfolio last year was a little bit different, um, but usually I will have zero or one regular season overplays for season wins. And the reason being is who wants to get stuck with a team where Aaron Rodgers goes down and you're dead? 
um, on an overplay. And the other thing is everybody likes overs. Everybody likes favorites. Everybody likes overs. So if you add up all the expected numbers and there's 172 games or something like that, 172 possible wins, you're usually going to get one or two ties and you're going to get on regular season win totals. Uh, I hate to share this with the world, but I'm in a sharing mode. You're probably going to get a number that's closer to 177 and a half, 178. So you're already, you got to pick and choose what overs you want if you really want the overs. So I'm automatically going the other way and looking at these variables and, and pushing it in. And I'm looking for teams in turmoil, um, pretty much. I'm looking for teams that one aspect of their organization or another is not right. Is it their co defensive coordinator? Um, Arizona's defensive coordinator, I think, held them back the last few years. I think there are a couple of defensive coordinators that have held teams back, a couple of offensive coordinators that have held teams back. So those are some of the things that I look at, um, but most likely it'll be a portfolio, again, that's 80% or more with unders. All right. We've covered so much good ground in the NFL. Ron, I can't let you out of here without also weaving in the other pillar of the show. Of course, we've got to talk some hops here. And to tee up the topic, we actually met in person last summer at a meetup that I hosted with pro bettors, Joey Isaacs and Porter. You were probably one of the best conversations, if not the best conversation that I had at that event. And I think one thing I didn't ask you there, but that I'd like to ask here is I've seen your appreciation for beer in continued conversation since then. <laughs> what got you into the scene and what would you say that you enjoy most about being a fan of craft beer? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I was an incredibly casual beer drinker um, that didn't do much of anything. We took a family trip and and my brother said, oh, you should try this particular beer. It's Negro Modelo. It's a nice dark beer. We were in uh, Port Vallarta or something like that. And we were sitting on the balcony while the ladies were shopping and stuff like that. And we were drinking this beer. And I said, wow, it's a good dark beer. I don't think I've had much in the way of dark beer. So then I had a second and a third. And I was confirming that it was a good dark beer. And I said, I'm going to try some dark beers. And pretty much from that date forward, which is over 20 years ago, I'm sure by now, we have uh, everywhere we go, we try sample different dark beers. I think I, I have a tough time differentiating between what's a stout, porter and stuff like that. I just go by, um, I just try something off the wall and if it works, it works. But that dark star that you introduced me to, yeah, I've had that a second time since then at a different place. You want a destination that has tremendous dark beers, plus a lot of hiking and other stuff and so on that I know you and your wife do and we do as well. We love the outdoors is Santa Fe. If you go to Santa mm. Fe and you order a dark beer in, in most of their restaurants, you're going to get a good dark beer. Just sample them all. That's that's what I like. I love that. Well, let's also weave in some other interests. You mentioned travel, also music. I think that's a perfect bridge that you just gave, Ron, to the Malinsky Minute to take us home here. Of course, a staple on the show, a nod to the late, great David Malinsky. And this Friday will mark five years to the day since his sudden and untimely passing. But Ron, I'm so glad to have you on this week because in your Twitter bio, you also mentioned being a big fan of music and traveling, two things that were near and dear to Dave's heart. And I would say from a music standpoint, Bruce Springsteen was Dave's favorite. And I think a big part of that was because as Dave was getting into his mid and late fifties, 
Bruce was doing some of his best work after the age of 60. I think I can safely assume that Dave would be doing the same if he were still with us today. And in fact, I had the bucket list experience of seeing Bruce and the E Street Band live in Denver last month. I've got the shirt on to prove it for the purposes of this conversation for anybody checking us out in video form on YouTube. And Ron, I'm mentioning Bruce here and and Dave because you also, being a fan of Bruce and the E Street Band, you tweeted last Saturday that you were doing draft work accompanied by the magical guitar of Nils Lofgren. And there was a really cool video with a tweet that you shared from somebody in the front row. I think they were in Cleveland for that specific show. And you could just see up close and personal, like how quick and meticulous and, and really truly skilled these guys are. And specifically with Nils Lofgren, I appreciate your appreciation of him because when I think of Bruce and the E Street Band, of course, you know, the boss comes to mind first and then Steven Van Zandt, Max Weinberg on the drums, Clarence, and now Jake Clemens on the saxophone. But Nils is also integral to their success. I wonder for so many people who are fans of other members of that whole incredible ensemble, what to you makes him stand out among all the others? I've seen him live in these small venues probably five, six, seven, eight times. He's He used to, before he had uh, double hip replacement, he used to do flips while he was playing the guitar. And he would play while he was in the air flipping. I'm, the guy <laughs> is a magician with the guitar. He could do, he can make that thing sing, cry, whatever it was. But, you know, plus being in the singer-songwriter mode, I liked his songs and I liked his singing. There's an old story when he was first, you know, he never made it anywhere big solo, like obviously Bruce or um, the Crazy Horse Band that he sometimes was in with Neil Young. But uh, when they were auditioning way, way, way back, Nils did an audition and Bruce followed him before Bruce was Bruce. And the story sort of goes saying that Bruce was didn't want to go on to follow Nils Lofgren because of what Nils was doing um, in terms of says, wait a second, he's, he's whatever. And then they had a chance to somehow connect and be a part of that band. And, and Nils just is able to go with the flow of whatever music that's in there. I think it's his sing, his guitar playing, his songwriting, his passion for music. And that passion for music is such that when I'm out on the patio recording mundane stats from a college football game, you know, looking between the lines, you know, was there a minus 41 yard you know, bad snap on a punt that I have to take out of the rushing data? If I do it to music, it's not as mundane as if I'm just sitting there, you know, scratching numbers off or something. So I've, I'm out on the pan. I've got music going all the time. And, and I just like the singer songwriter mode of that. I feel like this is such a fitting answer to a Malinsky Minute question because I I could just see Dave heartily agreeing with everything about the way (laughs) you just answered that question. And Ron, beyond Bruce and the A Street Band, I've got to ask with your appreciation for music as a whole, any other favorite bands or artists that you like to put on when you're doing your work on the betting side of things? Well, yeah, but nobody um, under the age of 40 would know them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, there's, um, I, I've gone into more of the female singer-songwriters. There's a Canadian lady that I really like, Kath, Kathleen Edwards. 
Um, and she does, it's not the, she's been on Letterman and when Letterman was on and all those shows, it's not just that she's a singer, but she also plays a mean guitar. And I appreciate the fact mm. that she plays guitar. She sings, she writes only her own songs and stuff like that. And she's a rock and roller too. If you go back to the Jackson Brown era, the ultimate singer songwriter, I've had the opportunity to see him several times up close and personal. So I'll have Jackson Brown on and, and I'll have more of those people from the seventies, eighties, nineties. Um, I just I don't know enough um, about the ones. And, and but if the beat is good enough, you know, I'll, I'll just have something on. I'll just have them. Whatever it is, Spotify, something like that or so on. Just give me singer songwriters and I'll just put it on. And uh, if I don't like it, I'll skip it. If if I like it, we roll with it. And maybe I discover someone else. There we go. Well, I can say that I still do have the age of 40 in front of me on the horizon, but mm -hmm. I, I can say that that answer still does resonate with me. And hopefully for some of the audience, maybe I'm just an old soul when it comes to music, but if I had to pick one artist to listen to for the rest of my life, I'd give the nod to Creedence Clearwater Revival. And I've seen John Fogarty live a few times, twice in Vegas, once at the Hollywood Bowl. So uh, some of this stuff, I think, yes, you might not have been alive if you're of a certain age to see some of these bands in their prime or when they were you know, still together with a certain ensemble. But at the same time, being able to appreciate some of this music is absolutely timeless. So I don't think age needs to be too much of a restriction here. And Ron, one more thing I want to touch on. You mentioned Santa Fe is a good destination for dark beer and good hiking. But with travel being such a big passion point of yours, especially when we're not knee deep in an NFL season, mm -hmm. are there any destinations other than Santa Fe that you'd say you're most anticipating visiting sometime in the not too distant future? Yeah, I haven't uh, got over to Australia and New Zealand. I'd like to get mm -hmm. over there. I got three states left. I got four COVID set, set us back. Um, I have three states who have to visit to get to all 50 of the states. Tahoe is one of one of our favorite go to places. Um, as as I hit more football retirement age and stuff like that, um, I'm mm -hmm. sacrificing some of my time to go to Iceland um, this mm -hmm. August, which is a new destination. Uh, came back from Israel, which was a dream destination to learn about the three major religions and all the cultures that go on there. It was it was an exciting place to be and a safe place to be at the time. I don't know about right this second, but it was certainly safe at the time. Um, yeah, we just we, we like to combine driving trips with uh, sometimes like uh, small, small group trips and sometimes just uh, individual trips all over the place. We we just like to experience different things and uh, do do our thing. You know, we're, we're lucky enough to be able to travel and uh, enjoy the world. I love it. Some of the, those adventures and experiences, no matter what happens, those can't get taken away. So I fully endorse that. Got two quick follow-up questions for you when it comes to that answer you just gave. Number one, you said that you've been to 47 states. Which three are still on the list? Missing Oklahoma. I don't know how we missed that in the middle of whatever, but haven't had a reason. And then um, I've been to the Minnesota airport, but I don't count that. So Minnesota and everybody's 50th state. I have not been to North Dakota. So we could combine Minnesota and North Dakota. That that I think I, I want this finished by uh, May of next year, let's say. Um, we're probably going to get there. May, June, uh, April, May, June next year, Minnesota, North Dakota, Oklahoma. 
All right. I might have to have you back on uh, once, if not multiple times in the future and check in on your progress as you approach the finish line of hitting all 50 states and going beyond the scope of the United States. You mentioned a trip to Iceland coming up in August, and I'm kind of afraid to ask, but is that a safe assumption that it precludes you from attending Bet Bash 3 in Las Vegas this August? Yeah, it's uh, an unfortunate conflict because we set this up over a year ago. Uh, so that was before there was even a date for BitBash or even thinking about anything like that. So we are locked into the first two weeks of August in terms of that. So you'll have to take copious notes. <laughs> uh, somehow I'll get a couple of days in Vegas so that I can uh, spread the wealth around for some of the future plays. But, you know, there's some people I've only met through Twitter, which is an interesting place to meet people. But if you're programmed for niceness, it can work. I think you can have relationships such as finding out who you are, for example. So it's it's a good thing. Uh, and there's some people I would love to meet in person that I know are going to be there that I that I, I won't be able to see. But maybe maybe down the road. Yeah, we'll just get to that 50th state before the summer of 2024. And then perhaps <laughs> next August, August 24, if and when that's the date that's set in stone for Bet Bash 4, presumably still at Circa, then uh, we can maybe put that down in pen. Sense. Ron, I think uh, we've covered about as much ground as we can here. I really appreciate all the time and insight and, and the spirited back and forth that we've had over the course of this conversation. As we start to round the final corner, I want to make sure everybody knows that they can find you on Twitter at Ron Ace Sports. Also on YouTube, you did a really good NFL exit report series for every team in the league. And I'm still trying to decide whether it was kind of you to include me for the chargers or twisted in some way to make sure that I didn't forget the historic meltdown they suffered to the Jags right before we recorded that episode. But it was a blast to be part of that series nonetheless. So Ron, people can find you on Twitter. They can find you on YouTube. We've got your recommendation for dark star as a good dark beer. Santa Fe is a good travel destination among many others. Is there anything I'm missing or anything else you'd like to add? No, I think you covered it. It's uh, thanks so much for having me on uh, w once. And if um, I have that uh, 32 page draft preview up, I'll tweet it out where it is and so on. People could check it out and hopefully I'll be on talking draft uh, the next two, three weeks as you we get through it. It's like George, like you had, uh, you know, your guest last week. It's he, he said it was his favorite time of the year. It's kind of my favorite time of the year too, in terms of the draft. It's really every team zero and zero and every team thinks they hit it big in the draft, but it's, it's such a puzzle. Um, and it's kind of a neat thing to get involved in. And it's nice to still be able to be healthy enough to write about it and talk about it. Absolutely. Well, I will be sure to link to your Twitter handle in these show notes for those listening in podcast form. Or if you're checking this out on YouTube, you'll be able to find that link so that if and when you do share the guide widely, people will know exactly where they can find it. Ron, once again, thank you for the time and insight today. And to the audience, thank you for tuning in. We've still got two episodes to go in our plug-and-play NFL draft series. So I will catch you next week with that next episode right back here on Props and Hops. Props and hops and